Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So we are doing something a little different this week. Adam and I are devoting the entire episode to one data point which is 75. That was the age at which the French philosopher Bruno Latour died a couple of weeks ago. He was a prominent public thinker, one of Europe's most important since the late 20th century, as reflected by the many obits and words of praise that circulated about him on Twitter after his death. Sometimes he's referred to as a postmodern philosopher, although that's not a label that he would have embraced. Nobody, though, would have called Latour an economist. It's, it'd probably be more accurate to think of him as a sociologist or an anthropologist of knowledge, someone who was trying to understand how we produce what we refer to as, as facts in the first place. And obviously, that does bear on the work done by economists. Basically, that seemed to be one of the themes of our podcast, that non-economic subjects have economic dimensions. So... It's also relevant because Latour's work has influenced Adam. So, Adam, could you give us a quick primer on Latourian thought? What was his philosophical project about exactly? Yeah, I, I, I would like to say yeah, he, he is one of the contemporary theorists, philosophers who influenced me most, um, really from my um, early graduate school days in the early 90s um, down to the present day, um, one of the great most gratifying things in my academic intellectual careers, in fact, that I, I got to know um, Latour uh, when he came to Yale um, to give a series of lectures there. And we stayed in touch, corresponded, and I wrote an essay for him as recently as last year. So he remained uh, a really vital intellectual force practically to the last moment, his last uh, breath. If you look back at his trajectory, um, he was born in Bone, which is the capital of the Burgundian wine region, um, to a family of négociants, so the the commercial players that organised the Burgundian wine market, and his family is amongst one of the most storied. Last time I saw him, we were drinking wines from his family's vineyards. He started out, however, as a as a religious thinker. His PhD was in philosophy of religion. He then moved in the francophone post colonial space into sort of more anthropological work. And then really found his early vocation in what became known as science studies. So the sociological, anthropological, you might almost say, study of laboratory life, which was also the name of his first really well-known book. But I think as became clear in the 1990s with his book, We've Never Been Modern, which ultimately was about, was deciphering the blind spots of modernity. 
The basic idea is that modernity is hung up on a series of distinctions, perhaps the most foundational of which is between nature and society, which were productive because they freed social arrangements from constraints that were previously imagined to be natural. But at the same time, you might say they kind of alienated us from what we actually do when we do science. So rather than science, as it were, in itself, the ideological vision of science, which tells us that science discovers the world which is out there and the more detached knowledge is, the better. In fact, knowledge was produced in an embodied form by people in real settings interacting with the world, acting on the world. So what we're often tempted, for instance, to call bias in knowledge, he would call interest. And it's because you're interested that you actually set out to find things out about the world and discover. So post-truth fake news was at first, you know, that whole meme um, was disorientating for him at first because all of a sudden you had to pivot from criticizing the self-deluding pretensions of science to actually defending science against deliberate obfuscation. He also struggled with the question of climate denial because climate denial often feeds on the self-doubt inherent to science to subvert our understanding of the world, right? It, it says, you know, no, we need more information, more knowledge, we can't simply decide. And so Latour in his later stages began to understand, I think, in more and more elaborate ways, the way in which science and its authority is continuously contested, but then, as it were, redeployed, because we can't live with it, in a sense, and we can't live without it. So it's a very constructive, one of the things that appealed to me about it, coming from originally quite a leftist position, was that it helped me to sort of reconcile myself to my world, which is which part of the reason the left are often rather sceptical of Latour, because they see him as a complacent, you know, accepting figure. And, and I actually find that a strength in his thinking. It's interesting. You suggested I pick up the We Were Never Modern book, and I did find it quite beautiful. I mean, very dense, but quite beautiful in its own way, and not least in his attempt to kind of describe an alternative way of thinking about knowledge. I didn't know that he had a kind of religious background, but that makes sense because it did strike me almost as a kind of like spiritual way he was trying to describe, to think about what knowledge could or should be. I did wonder, did Latour then ever address economics specifically as a sphere of scientific knowledge? I mean, economists are always gathering data. They're using that data as the basis of their judgments without necessarily reflecting on where that data is coming from or its ultimate truth. Would Latour argue that economists simply aren't reflective enough about their own work? He probably would, but in that regard, then they're totally typical of all high-functioning modern apparatuses. Mm. Right? They, they function on their blind spots. So the interesting thing to do when you criticize them is not to say, hey, you've got a blind spot, but to, to say, okay, and what is the function of that blind spot? What constitutes that blind spot? What does it enable you to focus on? And what does it occlude you? And what does it prevent you from seeing? And he had... I would say, and this is typical of his thoughts, as I was saying, it continuously evolved. I would see at least three different ways in which Latour engaged with economics. And the first phase, which is the one that I encountered and shaped my own early work on the history of economic statistics, was in thinking about laboratories, which is where he started out, as what he called centers of calculation and places from which you acted on the world remotely. So he, many of the science studies people were very fascinated by early modern trade networks and the incredible early navigational technologies that were developed in early modern Europe. Um, and he thought of those as ways of hanging, you know, making social networks hang together at great distance. That's how I first encountered him. Um, what he encouraged us as social scientists to do is not just take economic statistics at face value, 
and use them, which is a useful thing to do, of course. That's what they're for, and it would be kind of perverse to refuse to do it. But also to think hard about how they're made up, how they're constituted, how those data flows come together. I mean, this is now really quite an obvious thought, you know, when we think about the politics of big data and so on. There's, there's a huge industry, in fact, in journalism even, and in discussing how numbers are made up. But when he first proposed it in the 80s, this was quite radical and novel. France has a, I think, unique culture of combining official statistics, so data gathering, like the, you know, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, for instance, in the United States, with active anthropological, sociological uh, research. So that was the first phase. The, the second phase is, is Latour developed this more and more capacious understanding of modernity, which culminates in this book, We've Never Been Modern, from the early 1990s. Economics moved to the center of the story, not just as another form of knowledge, but as really in some senses, and in some senses more con conventionally, as the big driving story of modernity. You know, if science is one of the things that modern history gives us, economic growth is the other thing. And the third phase of Latour's thought is at the very end, and it, I think it was sort of embryonic, emerging in his, final, in his final years, which is a sort of radicalized ecological critique of that vision of the economy as an autonomous moloch that was kind of swallowing the world, um, which was a, a critique in terms of extractivism. So in his final work, um, written about the about the the pandemic um, and and its aftermath and how we should think about the world after that, he posited the, a distinction, almost a kind of class war, if you like, between what he called extractors and menders. And in a sense, you know, we, we are all to a degree both. You know, when I fly around on this ridiculous itinerary that I live, I am effectively extracting more, much more than my fair share of. CO2 resource. So he talked about kind of guerrilla armies of, you know, insurgent extractors operating around the world. And the, the aim of his politics increasingly was to strengthen the other side, which is the balancing, the mending function. So those I would see as like the three different phases of Latour's thinking about the economy. I mean, as you mentioned, the modern economy of the last couple hundred years is usually associated with these great leaps of productivity and growth we've seen, the Industrial Revolution, and all of that powered by some mastery over nature. So what would a Latourian reading of modern economics consist of? I mean, what was his theory for what unleashed this productivity? It sounds like there is a kind of implicit critique in his description of modernity in this way, but does that include then a critique of all that productivity? Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because the standard left critique exactly runs in those kind of terms, if you think about the Frankfurt School of people like that, right? So modernity and capitalist modernity in particular consists in the objectifying appropriation of the world. And that is thought of in terms of simplification, reduction. You know, the, the, the tape, you take a big, complex, subtly differentiated reality and reduce it to a commodity. So reduction, objectification, commodification, enumeration, quantification, all of these things go hand in hand, and they're thought of as simplification. And Latour would not disagree that objectification, quantification, commodification took place, except he would insist that it's only a modernist, a naive believer in modernist ideology who thinks that any of that is simple. In fact, what happens is we build incredibly complex networks, what they called actor networks, to create the effect of standardization, which is only exposed in moments like a supply chain crisis. And so, as it were, the naive critique of capitalism took capitalism's promise of simplification too much at face value. 
Whereas, in fact, the more intelligent critique or the genuinely critical stance, rather than, as it were, buying into capitalism's promise that everything is really like a can of Coca-Cola or everything is really like a Big Mac hamburger, which, as we know, even that varies around the world, um, actually would insist on the incredibly complex, ramified, in each case, locally specific set of contingent networks which enabled you to make sometimes, in the very few places, something that actually was close to a standardized, you know, commodified article. And so that, I think, for him, is the, the essential point that buried beneath the surface on which capitalism poses as the great quantifier and simplifier and capitalism's first level enemies rail against that in the interest of complexity is an actual reality of capitalism, which is a crazy mess. It's a crazy mix of hybrids of all different types. And it is the simplification and the denial of that reality which actually gives capitalism its extraordinary velocity. And his project, insofar as it consisted of exposing those hybrids, exposing that complexity, did in the end amount to a demand for things to slow down. And that, that, you know, there was this very weird way in which, especially since 2020, you know, as he came to the end of his life, the world more and more resembled like an introduction to the thought of Bruno Latour, because again and again and again, we'd be confronted with this situation with what we just... Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Covered was 
you know, the ability to provide vaccines depended on the supply of plastic tubes that was going to be used in the syringes that would put things in people's arms or the lipid bubbles that would transport this. Or then there'd be a freighter that got stuck in the Suez Canal because the, the ships are so enormous that they can't any longer deal with the, the winds and the currents. I mean, much of the bric-a-brac of the world economy that we've discussed on this show, you know, exposes this underlying complexity that Latour wanted to surface and keep continuously present. And that, in a sense, was the politics, to continuously insist on us recognizing that complexity. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here and be back in a minute to continue talking about Bruno Latour. Welcome back to Ones and Twos. We're spending this episode talking about the French philosopher Bruno Latour, who died last month. We got into some pretty heady stuff there uh, before the break. I know a bit more philosophy than our listeners might be used to. But we're counting on you to indulge us a little bit more here. Adam uh, obviously knew Latour, was really influenced by his work, so we want to unpack him some more. So, Adam... Latour's philosophy did get me wondering whether economists also pose a kind of contradiction to Latourism as you're describing it. Well, again, it's it's, it's quite nice, this series of cases, because one can actually begin to see the principle at work. So what Latour would say Mm -hmm. is follow the economists wherever they go and follow all the economists. So first of all, you'd start by recognizing economics as this massively ramified social field. There's no such thing as the economics discipline, right? There are literally thousands, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people involved professionally as economists all the way around the world. So when you want to talk about what economists do, you need to understand that system. You need to understand its its logic, the extent to which it does function as a system. And there is a huge gap between the super high theorists on the one hand who essentially play various types of axiomatic mathematical game, which are very, very sophisticated and very, very complicated, and on, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the sort of people that I studied in my first book, which is economic statisticians who are all about trying to build essentially networks, a sort of data supply chains, so as to be able to construct something like a reliable cost of living indicator. And when we say economics have economists have influence, we black box all of that and link those two things together and associate one with the other. And that's that's, you know, it, on one level you could say it's wrong, but the more interesting thing to say is, oh, how did they do that? <laughs> how, did, how did economics manage to create a thing in which the professor who's being paid, you know, to study mechanism design, on the one hand, is associated with the people who compile the cost of living index, which is going to feed into the Fed's uh, decision making, and another group of economists who, you know, go to Jackson Hole, who have very little to do with the high theorists or with the statisticians. And yet, in the world, there's a thing called economics that you've just asked me a question about. And so the Latourian would, would do that exercise in, first of all, showing how it all worked. And then rather than saying, oh, well, it doesn't exist, this whole economics thing is a spook, you'd say, ah, well, then how do they, how do they achieve the effect of that magic? Because that's remarkable, because it's undeniable that economics does exist in the, in the way that you asked me about it. There seems to be a specifically existentialist critique that Latour is making of capitalism. Uh, I mean, it's less a critique based on injustice or imminent crisis, like in Marx, say, than the idea that just profit-seeking is impoverished and self-deluding in some way. I mean, 
does he address capitalism directly in his writing in this way? And is this kind of existentialism what really marks it? Yeah, we're really getting to it. This is great. We're really doing a like a sort of, um, okay, do it yourself, Latourianism. So the way this works is that Latour will talk, you know, about the economy. Remember, it's organization accounting equivalents. That's actual, that's what constitutes the economy. For him, capitalism was a bit like the state or society. It was one of these sloganeering words that the modern age produces about itself, and this is a sloganeering critical word that the left produces about the modern age, which to his mind you know, serves to activate politics but needs to be understood in those terms rather than principally as a tool of analysis for us you know, inspired by, influenced by, and enlightened by his take on modernity. So he, as it were, puts capitalism in scare quotes. Um, capitalism is, as it were, the big beast that we summon into the room. And he will simply ask, so what is exactly do you mean by this thing called capitalism that you're invoking? Do you mean a particular configuration of business interest? Do you actually mean something we might better think of as a supply chain? Are you actually pointing to financial markets? Are you talking about an individual business person or are you talking about a business association or like the anonymous force that just brought down the British government, which is something like the bond market itself in cahoots with the Bank of England? What is this thing you talk about so confidently? And again, you, you see the move here. It's like, first you have the productive corrosive, huh, now you, now you mention it, like I'm not actually sure I do know what this capitalism thing is. And then rather than saying, aha, oh, so I've debunked you, he'll say, oh, isn't it interesting? When is it that we started talking about this cap? You know, how is it that this capitalism meme became a thing? Like, how did it start rolling? And what is the effect of us using this as a term? And in, you know, in, the, in my lifetime, capitalism, anyone who talked about capitalism when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s and early 90s was automatically labeled themselves as a Marxist. And now, like, you know, the Financial Times has it as a rubric you can, as it were, sign up for news about capitalism in the Financial Times. So finally, Latour wrote a lot, as you mentioned, about climate change towards the end of his life. And I was hoping we could unpack the implications of his way of thinking for the climate movement, the activist climate movement. It seems to me then that he'd think appeals to kind of strict, abstract scientific knowledge you know, the kind of abstract need uh, to lower CO2 emissions, he would think that would be insufficient to create the change that we need. Instead, it seems like he was encouraging an entirely different worldview for thinking about our relationship to the planet. This metaphor that came up in his final books was of Gaia, this kind of idea of a kind of a singular relationship that man and nature would have. Um, I'm curious whether this reveals a kind of strain in Latour's thinking that's kind of fatalistic, um, that dooms almost ecological politics in a certain way. I mean, if Latour is trying to tell people that human action is inherently destructive, that it basically we can't act without harming Gaia, this singular thing that we're a part of, then maybe most people will think, well then I guess we're doomed anyway, so why try to stop this climate change from happening? What do you think about the kind of lessons that he had for the climate movement? I mean, I think the first thing is certainly that he would be a skeptic with regard to the sort of rather desperate appeals that, are, um, that you've got a lot on in the United States, and for obvious reasons, to believe the science as such, right? So being a skeptic about modernity's 
crude, simplistic self-misunderstandings, he wasn't then going to say, well, the problem with you know, anti-climate politics is they don't believe the science. It's also just transparently not the problem with anti-climate science. They're, they're, they're interested to resist climate politics, and so they fight a proxy war over climate science. And it's a rather naive counter-strategy to say, well, if only we just believed in the science and rescued science's authority, we would all be fine because you know that that's a sort of that's trying to push on a piece of string. What Latour's demand would be is that we that we constitute networks of interest and uh, interested parties that would enable us to change the balance. To that extent, he was a more he was more realistic, right? Because there's an idealism which obtains when you say, well, the problem would go away if only people believed in the science. It's a matter of faith. He would think of that as a sort of you know, a bad legacy of religious thinking in the present by way of a new faith in science, which is being abused and where you then accuse, as it were, the heretics of refusing to believe. This, you know, this echoed through the COVID debate as well, in which the demand was simply that we believe the science was, in fact, science was giving incredibly mixed answers to what to do and even what was going on. And, and, and that isn't a criticism of the scientists. It was an incredibly complex and fast moving situation. It was difficult to get it right. Um, what they needed was allied, serious political engagement, not either you know refusal or blind belief. O on the Gaia point, I think this was a challenge that Latour took up in the spirit of his earlier thinking about the history of science. Right, I think the challenge of the Gaia hypothesis, which is this idea that the world is a single living organism with its own logic, if you like, not a conscious logic in any simple you know, human anthropomorphic sense, but nevertheless a governing logic. You know, the, he, I think he liked the idea in part because it challenged our modern conception of what nature was like. It made nature comprehensively active. There's a way in which I think what he wanted us to do was abandon our modern prejudice against animism, against the, I believe, the idea that nature is you know, a dead, essentially inert or law-like operated system that we either intervene in or don't intervene in. He wanted us to understand it as fully alive, like we're fully alive, and to that extent contingent and unpredictable. And his anxiety is that, as it were, Gaia will be sufficiently provoked to toss uh, us off her back in fury, as he wrote in one of his impressive lecture series. Was he a fatalist? No, I don't think he he was in the sense that he understood the pessimistic direction in which we were moving. He was incredibly alarmed by it. What he didn't think we could avoid was affecting the world. What he didn't think we could avoid was interacting with it. But what we needed to do was to understand ourselves as interacting with it as life forms like other life forms. What he spoke about increasingly towards the end was this idea of understanding how to live with other life forms, understanding ourselves both modestly and with the full responsibility, therefore, of being, you know, alongside the world. Imagine living with an absolutely massive, terrifyingly powerful pet, if you like, um, you know, that has the autonomy of a pet that is to which you are attached the way you are in a pet, but is not subordinate and smaller than you. But it is quite possible that we're its pet. It's a postmodern thinking in that sense, in that it strips away the vanities of modern thought that imagine it to be detached from the body, to be abstract, to be floating above reality, and try to force us back into a full consciousness of this deep interdependence and embodied quality of ourselves. Okay, well, we could continue talking for hours about Latour. He was clearly an intellectual giant and clearly an important figure for you personally, Adam. 
but we do have to end there for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. 
like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.